Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have I have Sarah Marsum with me. Uh, Sarah, thank you for, for joining me today. Happy to be here. Yeah. So tell me about your background. Well, my undergraduate degree is in Parks and Recreation Management, but I quickly learned after taking the Wilderness First Responder course that I did not want to have to take care of someone if they got injured in the backcountry. <laughs> So while pursuing that degree, I reflected on, well, what else is making me want to visit parks? And I was like, the cultural resources. I love the histories that are told um, at the parks across the country. So I was able to do a wonderful internship at Reardon Mansion State Historic Park. And this was during the recession. Um, So it was a beautiful 1904 arts and crafts mansion. But I think being an intern there during the recession when Arizona at that time was working at closing state parks due to their um, budget constraints, that really showed me a wide perspective of preservation and its financial issues. Okay, if you mothball a building, what type of physical issues can occur? And then also just seeing a community truly rally around a building and understand the value of the history um, tied to it and its inhabitants on the entire area, you know, that, that got me hooked. And I was like, okay, I'm going to figure out how to move forward in preservation and forge a path. That's, um, it's interesting to me, because that's a question I usually open with, with, when, when, with the podcast. And it's interesting to me how many people, you know, started out doing something different and then got drawn into preservation. So I think it's a very, very common, common story, but I, the, the whole, um, the, all the issues surrounding mothballing, um, buildings so that they are preserved and protected is, is a big issue. I, I, um, within the past year, Jonathan and I got called into a a Pennsylvania state park that has a building that has not been touched probably. They put a stove in, but it never had a bathroom. It never had a kitchen. It's from the early 1800s and people lived in it probably until 50 years ago, but it's in a, it's in a, um, a state park that's not under the museum commission. So of course they're like, what are we going to supposed to do with this building? (laughs) And they brought us in. I'm like, well, definitely keep the squirrels out of it because there were squirrels living in the attic. (laughs) Yeah. And then you think about all the climate repercussions with the snow in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, so, I don't yeah. think people truly realize how quickly nature wants to take back buildings. Oh, it does. It does. It does very much so. So, so what drew you into preservation? <clears throat> uh, well, that internship. And then mm-hmm. I went on to do um, a second internship to complete my degree at Old Salem Museum and Gardens, which is one of the oldest designated historic districts in the country. Mm-hmm. And being able to once again see another side of preservation, it solidified my interest. So I had a year off between my undergraduate and graduate degree. And then I went to Eastern Michigan University to get my master's in historic preservation. And it was a wonderful experience for me where I got to do an internship with the State Department of Transportation. I got to do an internship at Henry Ford's Estate Fairlane. I got a really wide range of experiences that showed me that preservation isn't one size fits all, that there's the wide range of tools in our buckets. And through those experiences, I found myself most drawn toward nonprofit work and community engagement strategies. Um, Both of my degrees have interpretation emphasis. Um, So when I graduated, my first job right off the bat was with the German Village Society in Columbus, Ohio, which is a Um, 233-acre designated district that's had local design review since 1960. So, you know, a second experience when I got to work for one of the earliest districts Mm -hmm. in the country, and that's the first historic district in Ohio. So it was, it was a, you know, a great first job right out of graduate school where I got to do everything from lead tours to work with homeowners through the architectural review process, you know, to set up and tear down tables. It was just a really great gig, once again, to just like show me the range of preservation and to solidify that this is what I'm interested in doing. Right, and that's a definitely, I'm sure, a way to um, working with homeowners, leading tours is definitely like probably fed your community engagement side too. Yes, and um, I was really given some free reign to overhaul their existing tours because clearly German Village Historic District, they were used to telling a very specific German immigrant story. So I overhauled their engagement to go into the 20th century so that we could tell the LGBTQ story, so that we could tell the story of urban renewal Mm -hmm. and... Um, And then that led to passive interpretation as well with, um, I led their interpretive signage project. And it's been really fun to see how the nonprofit has even continued that since I left. Yeah, Yeah, I think that that is definitely a a trend within preservation. I think we'll talk about that a little bit more, but about the being more inclusive with the storytelling, I think is is really, uh, I think it's a positive trend because I think that once you get people to start buying into the history that they can see themselves in it, then they'll want to preserve it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so tell me about, about your company. Um, Since it's about four years now. Um, since uh, 2017, I've worked for myself as a heritage resource consultant. Um, I have done a variety of work with, you know, working on my own, everything from historic tax credits to national registers to HABs. And some of those have been projects that have been fully me. Some have been subconsultant work. But what I really have worked to do is strategic planning and education outreach and helping connect people to organizations in new ways and to help organizations 
understand the possibilities beyond just staying afloat and just maintaining the existing content and what have you. So I have thoroughly had so much fun working with different organizations to do that. Um, for example, this past year, I worked with the Milwaukee Preservation Alliance. They'd hired their first full-time executive director and they're like, we need a 12 to 18 month plan. You know, We need to figure out how to move forward with an executive director. So for the past year, I've worked with them through the public engagement to solicit feedback, through board strategic planning, and then monthly coaching to help make sure that they are staying on track to achieve their goals. And uh, I will be shortly, actually, we'll be convening a wrap-up where we will be giving ourselves grades to see how well we did this past year. Um, but, you know, even that, it's a bit different than a traditional strategic planning where a consultant comes in and gives you a plan is like, here, have fun doing this, right. you know. I want to make sure that I'm setting the organizations up that I work with for success, whether it's a pop-up workshop, like um, in 2019, I had the most fun partnering with Modern Phoenix, Allison King, who runs that grassroots effort to advocate for mid-century modern in Arizona. Um, I worked with her and we coordinated a pop-up maker space in a partially vacant 1960s mall so oh, that we fun. could do, yeah, it was so much fun. We <laughs> basically tested out the space for the developer to see if it would work. And then the workshop that I facilitated was all about the influence of women on the mid-century modern textile movement. So we were sewing pillows and then afterwards we watched pillow talk together. <laughs> just, you know, like creative engagement and also just thinking through how we connect dots to achieve our goals and differently continually learning and evolving and yeah. taking feedback. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. So are you uh, limited in the geographic area you serve? It doesn't sound like you are. It sounds like you're willing to, to travel. I am always happy to travel and okay. work. And this past year with the pandemic has really shown me the true possibilities of virtual. As someone who I like to joke, I'm a child of MySpace, you know, I've been connected oh, yeah. to the internet for a long time. But last year, I was recently looking at the statistics for some of my uh, virtual workshops that I did around the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And one of them has had over 15,000 views. Oh, that's exciting. You know, yeah. I could never have reached you know, reach 15,000 yeah. people through in-person engagement. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's a whole range of possibilities between in-person activities, virtual, and then I just love working with my clients. Again, just to try and eke out what their goals are and then to see what the different routes are to creatively achieve them. Yeah, I agree. And, and there is definitely a generational uh, difference. I'm probably at least 10 years older than you. And um, I was talking to my cousin yesterday and her son is seven. And I, she was telling me he loves to fold paper. And I said, oh, um, does he, you know, do you, did you get him some books on origami? She's like, no, he just goes on YouTube. I'm like, I wouldn't have even thought of that. <laughs> I, I fixed my fridge this year using YouTube. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just like that. That's not my instinctual, you know, to, to go, to go to YouTube. But, you know, I do think, I think there's using a variety of ways to reach people where they are is really the, the, the key to, to educating, educating people. Yeah. 
It's also recognizing not everybody feels comfortable showing up for a walking tour. Right. You know, I love showing up for a walking tour. Those are fun, but not everybody does. So how do we meet people at all type of engagement points? Yeah. And it's not like you have to recreate the wheel every single time. No. You can utilize the same content and just no, in a new no. variety of ways. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, that's a, that's a big, a big thing that I think that more people need to do is reuse the content just in different ways, because then you reach different people and you don't have to put all the work in to create. Yeah, exactly. I always, when I, you know, I hear someone's working on a national register nomination, I'm like, great, wonderful. You're doing all this research. Well, what are you going to use that research for next now that you've done it all? And it's, you know, some people are like, oh, it's just for the historic tax credit or whatever. But, you know, like, I feel like there's always a next step to build upon. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's always something else you can use it for. So explain to me what inclusive storytelling means to you. Inclusive storytelling to me, um, it means a range of things. It means trying to do our best to tell the full history while recognizing that, you know, it may not be easy to find. So how do we tell the full story and basically destroying period of significance? You know, I don't think storytelling needs a period of significance. I think that tours should be rooted more in themes Mm. instead of a time period. So when we're being inclusive, it means looking at the people pre-settlement. It means looking at people in present day and then looking to identify maybe what stories we haven't considered um, that we have told in the past. So if, you know, we're looking at doing inclusive storytelling at a battlefield, the stories tend to be centered around the military forces, correct? You know, the soldiers and what have you. But are we talking about the women who were involved? Are we talking about the medical units that were involved that may have employed the women? Are we talking about the people who inhabited that land before the battle occurred or what happened afterward? So it's really about just creating a layered story approach. And then the inclusive storytelling also ties back to the language and the verbiage that we're utilizing and you know one of my pet peeves is acronyms for example you know that's it's just a little bit of language that can create a hindrance so are we being inclusive in the language that we're utilizing recognizing that people are coming to us from a variety of backgrounds One person may know what you're going to say. One person, this may be their first introduction to the topic. So how are we inclusively communicating so that everybody feels engaged and their knowledge is elevated? I I agree with you on that because I think sometimes people within any any industry start talking and they understand each other, but people around them might not understand because they don't don't share the same vocabulary. So I I definitely agree with you on that. Uh, Always when we go to... um, uh, uh, like a, a homeowner to uh, to go talk about a project will say, you know, stop us if there's like something that we're talking about that you don't understand. Because oftentimes, especially Jonathan, will get into like the technical, like this is how I would do it. And I'm like, maybe everybody doesn't understand what that means. Like, <laughs> so yeah. yeah. I think it was really reinforced to me through all the children's tours that I've done mm. because you know, the children aren't afraid to ask questions. So they'll be like, is this art? Is this that? I'm like, well, what do you think this is? Or, you know, please 
express to me how you're learning through this process. Yeah, I, I, I think that that's really um, important. And the other, the other thing I thought of when you were talking was the um, language that we use around certain historical events. Like there's really a movement I've noticed. Um, there's a lot of um, uh, like um, underground railroad research that's being done um, in our area and the moving from calling people slaves to enslaved, like those kind of language changes to, to, to change the way that we frames it in our minds. And I hadn't thought about it before they were actually like making this concerted effort to, to change the language around it. Very much so. Kennedy Whiters uh, is a preservation architect based in New York City, and she's leading a campaign called Unredact the Facts, where she um, is talking about how passive voice is different than active voice. Right. So, you know, as historians, we're trained to talk in passive voice. Mm -hmm. So, and then also recognizing if, you know, the historic marker says um, African American enslaved, you know, or something along those lines, she's like, well, who were the enslavers? Was it right, white right. people? You know, who was that? So again, how do we do language to tell the full story? And why have we been intentionally leaving out certain elements? Right. Or, you know, yeah. it's okay to learn and grow. <laughs> It is. It is. Uh, I, I. I don't. I think that that's that. That is where our growth is, even if it is uncomfortable. Um, I keep joking that I'm going to give a lecture about learning how to pull my foot out of my mouth. <laughs> Things that I've had to learn through embarrassing moments. That's funny. <laughs> oh, everybody has them. Uh, so, uh, tell me about um, dismantle preservation. Is it version two point one? Is that yeah? yeah. Oh, so. In 2020, I launched Dismantle Preservation, and Dismantle Preservation was a reflection of the extra time I had thanks to the pandemic and some other events that I coordinated, you know, not being able to move through with them. So for, I want to say at least more than a year, I'd been actively campaigning for salary transparency and job postings, and just trying to help educate people on why those are important. So I created Dismantle Preservation as a, you know, it's, it's fluid. I'll fully admit it's fluid. Um, so it's a mixture of campaigning for labor equity and preservation. And in 2020, thanks to other people assisting me, we reached out to five job boards and got them to change their requirements to include compensation information, which is really important because right. women and people of color are statistically less likely to negotiate. And also through all of the research that I've done, it's also shown that it's better for the employer as well because it doesn't waste anybody's time and it right. creates the relationship from transparency. So that's part of dismantle. But then also it was culminated around a um, all day virtual event on July 28th that had a range of conversations that I either had not heard at preservation convenings or in my mind, those conversations weren't quite being pushed far enough. So there was a panel discussion on unions, for example, like sites like the Harriet Beecher Stowe House unionized recently. Oh, I know people who work for state historic preservation offices that are part of a union. Yeah. So I think it's really important, you know, for us to consider what are the resources out there and the International Masonry Institute based in Philadelphia, 
they offer unionization for tradespeople and preservation. So there's a range of things. So, you know, I don't know much about unions, I'll fully admit. So that was just a topic that I thought was worth all of us learning a bit more about. Um, There was a conversation on mental health because burnout is a real issue in preservation. I'm sure you know people who you graduated with that no longer are in the field because I have that. Uh, And then there was conversations on implicit bias. You know, there was just a whole range of things from case studies on work being done by Black, Indigenous, people of color in the field to, you know, student loan debt. There was a half hour session um, on student loan debt and someone who went through the um, government nonprofit forgiveness program. Which is not easy. It is not I, so. I have, a, I have a friend who um, has worked like for not for hospitals and other like nonprofits, and she's been and they keep like dismissing her credits. Like they, it's it's not an easy process. It no. is not. So it's wonderful hearing from Adrian Burke, who's a preservationist in Florida. You know, she explained here is how they tried to refuse me, and it's even things as like that's not your signature, but she, you know, so she, I think it was great to hear yeah. from someone's experience on student loan debt to see if that's even possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really crazy to me. It, it almost reminds me of insurance companies trying to get out of paying things. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. But you know, like this is a range of it's not just the work that we have to talk about reevaluating and preservation. In my mind, we have to reassess what our workplace means, whether you're in nonprofits or government otherwise, because if you look at, for example, the qualifications required for a number of these jobs, you know, master's required, and then you look at the salary and it's 35 to $45,000, that math does not add up. No. So how do we shift the preservation movement to eliminate entry barriers, but also to make it so that people can actually create a sustainable living wage for themselves so that they want to stay in the path, you know, at the beginning, middle and end of the career. That's my goal. And, you know, there's a range of ways we can do it. It's not just salary. I've just chosen to focus on salary conversation. Do you think that that, um, being being like lower salary points, um, do you think that has to do with the majority of them being nonprofits that are offering the jobs? Is that do you think that that's part of it, or do you think it's just like, do, have you thought about that at all? I was just kind of curious of the why. Um, so far, what I've seen is some of it is with the history of a lack of wage transparency, people don't understand what the prevailing wages for certain positions could or should be. Mm -hmm. So they're like, oh, we've had this as our range for forever. People apply. It's fine. Um, You know, because there's always going to be someone who applies and I'm not going to fault that person. I don't know their circumstances. Um, So I think some of it is just ignorance and understanding how things have changed you know, cause you look at some of these positions and you'll, you can Google and like find the position from five years ago and it's the same wage. So I feel like the field isn't even factoring in inflation, but when we think about preservation, right, we think about it as a grassroots movement that eventually had professionalization added onto it. And I just think that there's something tied to it being a passion field 
that doesn't relate to it being a filled with equitable compensation. And right. I'm not saying all organizations are like this. No, obviously. but I could see that. Yeah. So I feel like there's some ties to that. I um, do think some of it's tied to fundraising issues um, for the nonprofits, for examples. But, you know, when we devalue the work, you know, it's not just an impact within the workplace, right? It's an impact in the broader community as well. If your local historical museum, you know, can only fund a part-time executive director, you know, that's fine. Right. I don't, I don't know the community circumstances, but you know, if you're showing this is only worth being open one day a week, you know, that's the community. They're just like, okay, this is a place you go on Saturdays. Someone basically is there as a hobby. Right. So I don't know. I, yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah I, I agree with you. And I think that I do think that there are some, some of those jobs. And I think also a lot of times, at least in my experience, a lot of those jobs have been staffed by women. And so then therefore the, the, the rate is also lower. Um, and, and then let's look at it from a consultant's perspective, right? So let's, a lot of consultants do historic tax credits. Mm -hmm. And I've seen a variety of bids from different groups where the preservation consultant fee for a tax credit project is so darn small, but the preservation consultant is the one who is getting million dollars plus for the project. Right, you know, yeah. There's, the math just isn't adding up. <laughs> I wonder if, and I, do, I don't know, like um, oftentimes architects will do a percentage of the project as they're, that's how they figure out their fee, what they, I wonder if that would be, you know, a way to kind of fix that, that issue, you know, rather than selling, rather than selling hours. I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, that's not what I do, but I think oftentimes people get stuck selling hours and then there's only so many hours in a day where if you can kind of figure out, you know, a way to bundle, bundle your package <laughs> from a marketing standpoint, I think it would actually probably be a, a probably a more fair compensation. Yeah. And so I think this all ties back to, you know, what I was saying earlier about thinking out the box and like who our audiences is. And, you know, it's not just the people who show up for our walking tour. Right. And so those are, you know, I've had projects of mine funded everything from arts organizations to last year, I did work for a political action committee, you know, um, private corporations, you know, we have a range of potential investors in preservation, but a lot of them just have not been asked. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's the worst thing to happen? They'll tell you no. Okay. Right. Yeah. No yeah. big deal. Yeah. But you have to do the ask and then you create these relationships, you build the, you know, the partnerships and that expands your potential funding mechanisms. Is it, you know, our state historic preservation offices, many of which are underfunded, is it their staff advocating to, you know, somehow, you know, I don't know, the applications for the tax credits, maybe that somehow gets pushed back into their department in a different way that's being considered or a bigger way that's being considered. You know, I just think we need to think through our funding mechanisms and new strategies. There's more than the certified local government grants from the SHPO every year. You know, there's right. a myriad of grants that we can and should be pursuing yeah. or funding pools. 
Yeah, I actually I had a um, it was probably a few months ago. I had uh, somebody who specializes in um, nonprofit fundraising on the podcast. And one of the thing, one of the ideas that he had that I thought was so good was don't just focus on the preservation grants, focus on like the topic specific grants. So like if it's if it's you know some, whatever type of history like find people who are funding mm -hmm. that and then go after those grants too and i thought that was really smart um and i hadn't thought of that so i was like you know that yeah yeah and you can actually use grant search software many libraries have it right. um because it is expensive to pay for those portals right. so many grant or libraries have them and then you you know you go through those search terms and you will find unexpected tiny foundations you'll find funding that you've never even crossed your mind. Right. Yeah. yeah. And are you, um, I think we, um, I thought, I think our conversation was great, but I think we, um, the, your, your dismantle preservation, oh, yes. you have a new one coming up, don't you? Yes. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, okay so um, I was incredibly floored. Um, more than a thousand people live streamed the event oh, on crazy. July 28th. Um, close to 2000 were registered. I can watch on YouTube. The views are still accumulating. But the feedback that I was hearing is that people were interested in another. So since this is a pet project of mine, you know, I don't want to just do the same thing multiple years in a row. Right. So for the 2021 event, which will be hosted July 26th through 30th, I, you know, took some time to reflect on who should the speakers be, what type of conversation should be have, had, and I really landed on the importance of uplifting student and recent graduate voices, especially when we recognize that they've lost a huge chunk of networking opportunities right. the past year and a half. So um, the entire event, which has over 30 presentations, ranging from poster presentations to lightning talks, which are 10-minute talks, to a handful of panel discussions, all of them are students or recent graduates. And not just from preservation programs, there's public history, Mexican-American studies, sociology, because mm -hmm. once again, reinforcing that preservation is being done by a range of people. It is. And I'm just so excited for how it's been shaping together um, and thanks to financial support um, from private donations and then groups like Museum Hack chose to sponsor. We're going to, we're providing honorariums again, which I did last year. So once again, reinforcing to the emerging professionals that their work has worth and yes. the case studies that were submitted for inclusion I am, I'm truly blown away by the work that is being done oh, right now. Amazing. You know, very interesting work in everything from archives to historic sites to parks, affordable housing advocacy. It's really the range of what preservation is and it's very forward thinking in interesting ways. Oh, that's, that's, that's exciting to hear. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to, um, I, I think that there's definitely a shift. So I've been, I've been full time in preservation for 20 years. Um, and I, um, I, there's definitely been a shift as the baby boomers have been retiring to, to, to kind of change the, the narratives and the, and the history that we tell. And that's exciting to me because I, I think that we do need to be more, more inclusive in, in the stories that we tell. 
So I'm I'm glad that you have case studies to highlight that, and you're and you're encouraging, um, you know, you're encouraging the next generation to to really um, become professionals, which I think is also something that that um, that that has helped. Some of the college programs have helped with that, but like on the trade side, uh, where I see a lot of of people, that's not always the case. So I think it's really good to encourage that in in the younger people to really be. Um, to really, you know, encourage professionalism within preservation, that it, it can be a career. Um, and the event, I'm really excited. One of the days is going to be entirely dedicated to international preservation. Oh, so it's yeah. also encouraging us to look beyond the yeah. U.S. constructs. Yeah. So that'll be yeah, that, that. Yeah, that's exciting. And, and they have lo much longer preservation traditions than we do. So that, you know, that's exciting to, to watch and learn from. Yes, it'll be highlighting some work from Jamaica to Fiji to the UK and beyond. I'm oh, yeah. really excited. Yeah. So um, tell me about the Tiny Activist Project. Um, I was going to the National Trust for Historic Preservation Conference in Houston in 2016. And I was managing a social media account at the time for the Rust Belt Coalition of Young Preservationists. And I was like, how funny would it be to hear Jane Jacobs' perspective on Houston, which notoriously lacks zoning. And <laughs> a lot of people just describe it as urban planning, Wild West. Yeah. Um, so I have sewn since I was very young and I just sewed up a little tiny Jane Jacobs doll. Um, and I took Jane around Houston and she visited the beer can house. She saw the, um, you know, so she saw some signs advocating against high rises. She had an adventure and throughout <laughs> the uh, conference, I had people being like, I want a tiny Jane. And I'm like, well, I hand stitched this whole thing. That would be a very expensive doll for right. you all. Um, so I ended up partnering with uh, my dear friend and illustrator, Shannon May, who is currently an art director for Google. And she did the illustration for Tiny Jane Jacobs that um, most people who know about Tiny Jane are familiar with. So um, I started selling the Tiny Jane dolls and you can acquire them either pre-sewn or sew your own if you want to be creative. Um, <laughs> so I started selling them as a way to help me give back because, you know, I not necessarily rolling in dough as a consultant. Yeah. So I was like, how can I fuse a passion of mine with a fundraiser? So initially the Tiny Activist Project, when it started, it was to raise awareness on Jane Jacobs and her impact on urban planning and mm -hmm. preservation. And I, you know, I learned, I've learned through going to conferences, lots of preservationists have no clue who Jane Jacobs is, right. which I think is fascinating. So, you know, amplifying the work of women, inclusive <laughs> storytelling, but every doll that sold initially, I um, used a portion of the money to help support and give tiny scholarships to people with big dreams to attend the National Trust Conference to help bridge funding gaps, to give opportunities again to emerging professionals to attend the events for networking, for education and otherwise. So let's see. So the first scholarships were in 2017 and from 2017 to 2019, I helped support about 10 people to attend oh, the great. National Trust mm -hmm. Conference, which is great. Yeah. And then 
it, and then it, it grew from Tiny Chain to the Tiny Activist Project in 2019 with the inclusion of I Am Pay, the architect. So the reason why I Am Pay was selected is because a, a lot of people don't realize that he came to America during the Asian Exclusion Act through Angels Island. He was able to come to America because of his familial wealth and then basically saying, if he's not able to support himself in America, we will financially support right. him. So, um, but then later on, as I.M. Pei developed his career, and after he won the Pritzker Prize, he started using funds to send um, Asian students to America to study architecture. So he started, you know, supporting and building the movement. Yes. And I also just think, you know, in general, as an architect, he has an interesting story from being an Asian man in the field in a time when people were very anti-Asian right. sentiment and what have you. So just expanding the stories in different ways. And I had a ton of fun in Columbus, Indiana. I partnered with the Columbus Area Arts Council and we used Tiny IMP to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Cleo Rogers Memorial Library, which he designed. And he, I, a number of the museums that he has designed have utilized them in their storytelling. Um, and, unfortunately spacing on the name of the museum, but the one that he designed in Syracuse, for example, during the pandemic, they had IMP in the different galleries and, you know, they used him as a yeah. social media tool. Oh, so that's fun. Yeah. So between Tiny Jane and Tiny I Am, you know, it's a fun way to bring out whimsy in adults, but also to tell stories to kids and then also, you know, fundraise and give back. So the doll sales in 2020 actually financially supported the Dismantle Preservation event right. and allowed me to give speaker honorariums and pay for the, you know, Zoom and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how the fundraising component of the Tiny Activist Project will continue and yeah. the future, it will always be there. I just want to make sure that it's evolving with needs and providing assistance to others and hopefully within the next year there will be another doll added to the project okay did you do you have something in mind oh uh, I do I'm okay. currently reaching out to the family to seek consent oh <laughs> you're not just going to make dolls of people <laughs> No, I try and do my best to reach out to people. Um, so one of the best things about the I Am Pay doll is one of his great nieces bought a ton of the dolls and gave them as family Christmas gifts oh, one goodness, year. That's fun. Yeah. yeah, it made my heart swell a thousand times. <laughs> or a great Jane, Jake, Tiny Jane story is I recently had a mother who who is an urban planner. Uh, she was going to give a guest lecture to her students her to her daughter's class on urban planning so she reached out she bought a ton of fabric and she and her daughter who's in second grade they worked with their neighbor who's 90 years old to sew all these little dolls to give oh the, to goodness. the entire class oh that's fun that that's really fun yeah it, it is I was as you were telling the stories of of the of the um of the dolls I was thinking it is really a way to connect people um, you know, in addition to the fundraising, the other and telling the stories of, of the people that that people might not be familiar with. It's it's also a way for people to connect. And, and you know, those two stories really, really highlight that 
so that's I think that's really that's really a fun project. I I would I would enjoy I would enjoy doing that. Um, and you know the, the pop up was fun too. So <laughs> it sounds like you have a lot of fun. <laughs> I I truly believe preservation can and should be fun. Yeah. yeah. So um, tell me about the challenges and trends that you see in preservation. Oh, that's a big can of worms. <laughs> um, I think that one of the biggest challenges that we currently have in preservation is our reliance on the National Park Service for guidance. And I mean this in the sense that many of our local architectural review boards or commissions, uh, they rely on the National Park Service for those guidelines instead of creating their own for their local community. But when we look at how the National Park Service guidelines have evolved over time, you know, it's very slow moving progress. Mm -hmm. And then if we are looking to develop our local standards based on the standards for the National Register, you know, again, very slow moving up there. So I firmly think that one of our biggest hurdles is shifting the mentality to recognizing the wealth of resources held by our state and local community members, our preservation nonprofits, our state historic preservation offices to develop our own, you know, more localized approach to preservation because we cannot just sit around here waiting for the federal government right. at the pace that they're moving at. So I think, I consider that one of our biggest hurdles. And, you know, if I attend one more conference where I just hear about all the flaws with the National Register, I'm just going to lose my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all know those exist. So we either need to work to change the process at the local level, state level, or we just need to, I don't know what to do at the federal level even. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think that, um, yeah, I think that sometimes when you're really close to a problem, it's, you see the problem, you know, there's a problem, but it's really hard to like think of a solution or, or try and figure out a solution. Cause it's always been that way. So like, how, how is it going to change? Like, I, I think that that's kind of human nature, <laughs> but, um, but I do, I, I think that, I think that um, Lancaster, um, uh, where I am in Pennsylvania, they did a design guide maybe 20 years ago with, they got a grant from the National Park Service and I go to it all the time. It's out of print. Nobody has any more copies. They didn't think to digitize it. And, but it's like, if I need like an answer to a local, like what colors were appropriate, you know, anything, it's there. And I'm like, this is like the best thing ever. <laughs> And, yeah. and not that I don't, not that I don't go to the, um, the standards or, um, the, um, the preservation briefs, not that I don't go to those, but they're much more big, broad overview than, you know, down specific to, to a certain community. Yeah. It doesn't fully recognize the range of housing types and building materials right. across the country. I have a great friend who's an architectural conservator and, you know, she's just been trying to research tabby in the Midwest recently and like she can't find any resources on it. Yeah. So let's, you know, either create our own or look to what is existing. I think a lot of people don't realize that many state historic preservation offices have created their own architectural style guides, like you yeah. said, and lots of smaller cities have as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. And, and yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that people don't realize that those resources are there. And 
I, I think that they're very important, um, important resources for, for local preservation and for people to understand this. I mean, the guy that I was talking about has like how to maintain your home. Like that's very practical and important for a homeowner. Um, and, and, you know, making, not making changes that are going to hurt the building. And that, that's, you know, I think where we need to start, like that needs to be like our baseline. <laughs> and I think that connects to what I would say is the second biggest um, hurdle in preservation is through the professionalization of the field, which, you know, has done wonderful things, right. you know, from saving buildings to creating a whole new field for people to work in, um, you know, we are talking to each other a lot of the times when what we are creating is ideally for anyone. Right. So I think that communications is a real shortcoming in terms of disseminating existing information or helping, you know, listen to what the community wants and then creating materials with our existing knowledge base. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I really agree. I think our, I've always viewed what, what we do and in our marketing is education. Like we're, we need to educate our, uh, and that's you know one of the reasons that we do the podcast too, is because I feel like people need to hear a wide range of opinions and voices in preservation and understand, you know, that there are people out there that can help them because oftentimes I'll hear people say, oh, I didn't know there was somebody who just specialized in working on older buildings. And I'm like, well, there are, there's a lot of people, <laughs> there's, oh, there yeah. are resources out there. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's, a type of preservationist for any type of project you want. If you want to have fun, you call me. <laughs> you know, if you want to figure out how to fix your building, they call you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, but I think that that's important for people to understand that because I don't think that the field in general has done a good job of reaching out to the greater community. I agree with you yes. on that. I do. So, um, uh, so, but I, I am like speaking on trends, you know, I am starting to see more outward communications, you know, I think like social media, I think COVID really kind of got that ball rolling um, because people had to step away from how they had been doing things to, to reach people you know, virtually or so, so, through social media. So my greatest fear, I will say, is I think, you know, we've all expanded our tools with all these different digital virtual mm -hmm. opportunities, right? So a lot of what has been done in the past year, we didn't necessarily have a plan for it. It was slapdash based on our continual evolving understanding of how the pandemic would go. So what my fear is people will either revert back to the normal. And I think we can already see that there's currently a conference happening right now in Charleston, South Carolina on climate change you know so reverting back to in person mm -hmm. um but also not having a plan a specific strategic approach to how we digitally communicate right. which I've worked with some clients to develop that because I think we really need to be intentional and you know I've seen a number of people where they post a thing once and they're like, okay, I made the announcement about that one grant. I did a great <laughs> job. And I'm like, no, like we have to continually have plans on how we communicate right. these yeah. things. Yeah. And yeah. now that we have expanded tools, we now fully know, or at least largely know what our opportunities are and we can be strategic about how we communicate outwardly. I think that um, I really enjoy marketing. Like that's one of my other passions. And I think that more preservationists need to at least put some time into learning 
the basics of marketing. And I'm not talking like big brand building marketing. There's like some really good grassroots marketing books that you could, you know, that you can, you could read and learn how to reach people. Cause it, it is, it, it is, it's some of that is marketing. <laughs> and, and I don't think that, I don't think that all, like, especially nonprofits, I don't think everybody's really comfortable with that and thinking about it as marketing, but that's what it is. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And I very much agree. So, you know, as a preservationist, I always look to preservation education at the forefront. I'm like, okay, if so-and-so organization is hosting a thing on marketing, I'm more likely to attend that. Right. Yeah. But what I've had to do to develop that for me is I've attended um, a variety of small business conferences that are based on. So I've chosen ones that are based on creative, you know, like, Oh yeah. uh, So that, because I'm like, okay, preservation is a really niche business. So if someone's able to sell a thousand yarn scarves, you know, they know (laughs) how to communicate a really niche thing. That's what my person to learn from. Yeah. 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 I, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, and there's a lot of overlap, um, I think between arts and preservation too. Um, just like personality wise, people wise, like, so um, is there anything that you thought that you wanted to share that maybe we didn't touch on or didn't talk about? I feel like we covered a lot. We did. Um, we did. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Um, it's always fun to hear what someone else's perspective is. Um, I just, uh, I would just like to tell people like, oh, I'm always happy to have conversations with people. Just don't hesitate to reach out via email or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Um, I, you know, I, very good. Well, do you have, um, any offers? I know we talked a little bit about the dismantle preservation. Is there any, did you want to promote that some or? Um, registration will go live tomorrow. So it'll be live by the time this podcast is up. Um, so I highly encourage people to attend this year's dismantle 20 July 26th through 30th. It's going to be an action packed event. Um, it's not just going to be a live event though. Everything will be recorded and distributed afterwards. So if you're not able to break away from work, totally fine and understandable. And if you register, it gets you on the mailing list. So I utilize the mailing list of registered attendees to also share other similar interesting types of events, um, but it also make it so that you get first notification about what's happening in 2022, which I will just say that the way this cake is baking, 2022 is going to be really fun. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. And um, how can our listeners contact you? Just reach out via me at sarahmarsum.com. You can um, also, there's a contact for my website, which is sarahmarsum.com. And I'm just, my handle is Sarah Marsum on all places on the internet to keep things simple. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate your, your time today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.